slip through to a wide open Mora. Outside the 18, dangerous cross, header, save Willis! Ball still live, Knauss' shot deflects off Willis again. It's out of play for a corner kick, but Joe Willis came up big not once, but twice to keep this game scoreless. You are listening to the Club and Country podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who have covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I am the voice you just heard on that radio highlight, Wes Bowling, Nashville SC analyst, and uh, for a night last week and for a night this coming weekend, play-by-play broadcaster. Yeah, you're, this is a Wes heavy open to the episode, but I'm Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of ClubCountryUSA.com, which you may recognize as Club and Country, the namesake of this very podcast. Sorry for the Wes inception, the <laughs> Westception, I suppose. Um, in Westion, nah, we'll, call, we'll, call, we'll workshop it later. <laughs> yeah, that was, we'll do better, I promise. Uh, but thanks to ESPN 94.9 for uh, for the highlights, and thanks to Moon Taxi for getting us in and out of the show with a pop, some awesome local music, local voices, and of course, the local soccer team, which we're here to talk about yet again today. And you're going to really love this episode. I think you may not have loved the match this past weekend, though, listeners. Three straight scoreless draws on the road. Not sexy, but successful hard to deny it as nashville keeps dc from getting within four points in the table and nashville still sits six points above fifth which would slip them outside of home playoff position bittersweet for supporters who want nashville tim to pack its attacking form on the road but also pretty dang admirable to shut out a dc team that had scored in its last 12 matches yeah there was definitely some existential angst online um in the nashville sc fanosphere because the draw was not necessarily the most interesting thing in the world and Nashville did not create a ton in the attack like you just mentioned but I mean last I checked road draws are almost never something to look down on in this league even if they don't feel great and when that's against a team in playoff position I think that goes double you're preventing them from accumulating more points and you're getting at least one when you travel away from home which is Honestly, very tough to do in Major League Soccer. Yeah, and that DC team had scored 13 goals in its previous four home matches. So, you know, I, I will um, identify with anybody who says, well, that wasn't exciting. When's this attacking going to get back into high gear? And yet, of course, um, can't argue with with getting a point away from home. Uh, by the way, I will mention now that's four matches I've called play-by-play for Nashville SC. <laughs> Three scoreless draws and a 2-0 loss. I, I would like to say... I predicted it when you tweeted that you were on the call. I said, okay, you're saying scoreless draw. Let's you go. Did. And I, I honestly, even in our pregame, I said to Kelly Glendening, I said, Kelly, if Nashville wants a clean sheet, it better have a plan B. I thought there'd be goals in this one. And by the way, just a warning, I'm on the mic again Saturday in Philadelphia. <laughs> so just. Hey, a, a scoreless draw in Philly will be nothing to look down upon, though. Don't say that. This is a little preview, a little preview of what I might be saying. Later I think in the show six goals well. need to happen. Six combined goals. <laughs> uh, two big matches this week. We mentioned Philly Saturday, but first up Wednesday, Columbus comes to town. One of two remaining home games for Nashville. A busy week to look forward to. And Tim, a week that really could define how this season ends for the boys in gold. Yeah, we're still one match date away from the spreadsheet of outcomes being small enough to not crash my computer. <laughs> um, apologize to listeners if you can hear my laptop's fan cranking away during the course of this recording because it is trying to work out the spreadsheet right now. But a win against Columbus should be enough to seal playoff position. I'm pretty sure it would seal playoff position. And then a four-point week would keep NSC firmly in the driver's seat for the number two seed in the East. And today we're going to have the best possible guest on to discuss what has happened and what is to come, Tim. Yeah, have you ever wondered uh, whether Nashville SC's technical staff is truly happy to snag a single point on the road? 
or what are the practical changes in changing the balance from attack oriented to defense oriented? I Nobody knows the answers two. better than Gary Smith. He's the only head coach that Nashville has ever known as a professional outfit with this franchise. And he joins us to talk a little bit of basically everything. Really appreciate Gary taking the time, especially during a three-match week in an eight-day span, to chat with us. And he went over his allotted time with us, which, of course, we weren't mad at. It was tremendous insight from Gary that gets into so many of the questions, in fact, that you ended up asking us in the mailbag uh, and more. So uh, you're really going to enjoy what he has to say, and we're going to get in and out of our early shout fairly quickly so we can get to Gary. But we'll discuss the numbers between Nashville's three scoreless draws in a row now away from home, and then we will preview Columbus and Philadelphia before hearing from the gaffer a good solid 20 plus minutes with Gary Smith that, that you certainly will not want to miss and then we'll get to the mailbag where again Gary pre-answered some of your questions but but some others are about that attacking momentum and, and where is Ake Loba just a tease for you by the way Gary does talk about the striker depth chart so he'll give you a bit of insight on that and then the playoff picture in the east is really starting to Actually, it's failing to take shape. Let's be honest. It is not <laughs> taking shape. It is a huge jumbled mess. Uh, basically, Nashville SC has one foot in the playoffs and the other foot outstretched into a dangling vacuum of, of soul-snatching teams below trying to, to pull, the, pull them back down into the this is, this is our darkest episode yet, just for that <laughs> sentence, mean I for it to sound so bleak <laughs> there. Um, but, but certainly very good. The better analogy, actually, that I said before was that, that there's a bar fight going on at Tootsie's and Nashville's trying to go up the stairs to the rooftop and avoid, <laughs> and avoid the fray. It's a little more uh, regionally appropriate. Um, all right, enough bad metaphors. Let's get straight to our early shout. Back the direction of a DC player who sends it back in, and it's headed wide, and that's going to do it. Donovan Pines, the last man to touch the ball, and Nashville Soccer Club once again, with more grit than grace, with more toughness than beauty, has gone on the road to a playoff contender and has rendered them silent. And that was the end of the D.C. match. Um, Nashville <laughs> extends its road unbeaten streak to four. Three of them draws in that gritty stalemate with D.C. More importantly, the boys in gold have yet to lose to a team above the playoff line. So, Tim, as we discussed a little bit, competing emotions for Nashville supporters. The longest stretch without a win this season, and yet another high-octane attack silence on its home pitch. To be fair, not losing to a team above the playoff line means they have lost thrice to teams below the playoff line, which might be a little bit less exciting. But um, I think you you certainly wouldn't accuse NFC of playing exclusively exciting, flashy games at this point in the season. But adding to the points tally, yeah, albeit slowly but surely, in a tough stretch in terms of who, but more importantly, where these games are taking place. Um, you know, that's that's a tough stretch of the schedule, and, and they're continuing to add points, and that's really what you need to do. Time for our gold nuggets, and we will dive just a little bit into those three scoreless draws on the road. Uh, those three attacking efforts all ranked in the bottom 10 in XG this season for Nashville. XG, of course, being expected goals. A total of 20 shots combined in those three games. Not shots on target, but total shots. And Nashville actually has exceeded that total in a single match three times this season. <laughs> all of them you won't be surprised to know, Tim, were at home. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly explanations for, for each of those three matches. Smith rested his top attackers on a terrible pitch in Soldier Field in the Chicago Fire game. NYC is an elite team, much better than their recent results might indicate. They've really fallen into a slump here, but Nashville still got that road point. And then the team was without three players coming off international duty on Saturday evening, plus it's number three expected assists player. Um, like Wes mentioned, expected goals. Uh, the expected assist is basically key passes that lead to a shot, the value of that shot. Dan Lovitz, he was not there and that game was on the road so with all the pieces that they were missing 
given the look of the table and at this stage of the season, playing not to get beaten in those circumstances is, is I understand that it's definitely frustrating, but certainly it's understandable when you look at what Nashville SC wants to accomplish by the end of the regular season. Sure. No Godoy, no Johnston, no Lovitz, no Leal, and, and those three international players, um, I think precautionary and or rest absences, nothing long-term expected from, from those three. Uh, so Nashville has now allowed the fewest road goals in the East, actually 60% lower than the nearest competitor. Tim, can you guess who that is? Uh, I could not until I looked at the rundown, and it will shock and awe our listeners for sure. It's Inter-Miami. Inter-Miami. 16 road goals allowed. Now, a bit of a desperate uh, and and different situation at home for Miami. And they did allow four on the road in Columbus this weekend. So there's also that. Uh, Cincinnati, by the way, has allowed 38 38 road goals. So is the repeated caginess away from home getting old for you? Or is it getting more impressive because of who it's happening against that Nashville goes to a dynamic NYC team, to a DC team that's extremely dangerous and is still shutting teams out? Yeah, I think for multiple reasons, Major League Soccer has by far the biggest home field advantage of any top league in the world. So that you, you kind of have to take into account those factors when you set yourself up to play a game, if you are, are the head coach of the team. And I think if the difference in going for three points instead of going for one point means that you're more than twice as likely to get beaten as you are to collect all three of those points, that's been the case in the league this year. Home teams uh, in games that are not drawn, home teams win more than two thirds of them. So basically it's, it's you know, your, your game theory situation there is basically the same thing. And, and it's a less uh, enticing proposition when you think of it that way. So from a cold hearted rationalization, perspective it makes sense is it less fun to watch of course but but in terms of getting results it's it's probably the best you can ask for so let's let's draw a clear distinction then between nashville's home performances and its road performances to give you an idea of how the numbers back up the uh what we're seeing certainly on the score sheet Uh, and they are backing up what we're seeing on the score sheet um at home this year nashville's average expected goals per game 1.84 don't need to tell you if you've been at nissan stadium they've been really exciting games on the road just over half that, 0.96 expected goals per 90. And the shots as well, Nashville with five and a half fewer shots per game away from home. 16.4 at home, 10.9 on the road. And so, Tim, I'll ask you, can Nashville afford to continue its dual identity? Going away from home and being steely and gritty and tough, going back home and, and scoring and scoring. Or at one point, or at some point, does one of those interfere with the other um more pointedly should it take more risks on the road to seek to avoid more uncertainty created by multiple road playoff matches if they're stacking up one point one point instead of getting the three they need to to guarantee a second spot you know i mean we're at the stage of the season where you can look at exactly what the road games remaining are going to be and if you take care of business at home like nashville sc has done an extremely good job of this year you know that three of those road games are as follows Philadelphia, that's going to be a tough one. Cincinnati, um, maybe not so much. Not Orlando, tough. that's going to be a tough one. If you if you think this team is confident enough to go to Cincinnati and, and play more of an open game, more of an exciting game, you only have two games where you're at risk of saying, okay, we're going to play for the draw and only get the one point. So it's a kind of a different thing. New England cannot be caught in the table. So there is no chance to advance the position that Nashville SC is in right now. They can max out at number two in the East. So yeah, against FCC, take risks. But if you beat Columbus at home this Wednesday, you can really take stock of even 
whether you need to think about the road approach at Philly in Orlando, because you have set yourself up to know exactly where you're going to be standing when you, you know, finish it up against um, New York Red Bulls at home. Take three points against Columbus Wednesday, get to 51 for the season. And, and as you've mentioned, Tim, it virtually clinches Nashville's playoff. Spreadsheet's future. still cranking away. If you can't hear that computer fan, everybody. It's humming away. <laughs> it is absolutely humming over there. Uh, if you freeze up, then I'll just keep talking because um, I, I can certainly understand that laptop. <laughs> got one of those myself. Uh, it, it really all does boil down to that, right? When you draw on the road, when you draw on the road, when you draw on the road, and then you went at home, those draws look fine. It looks like you meant to do that. It looks like you were setting up for that. Uh, let's talk about Columbus then. They lost six straight earlier this year. In their last five, though, just one setback. They're just four points below the playoff line. This team has gone from dominance that last year in winning MLS Cup to despair in the middle of the season to desperation now as they are just close enough to that playoff line that, that there's just an ounce of hope they can still make it. Columbus won MLS Cup last year, and to be fair, they did have a lot of luck along the way, particularly in the regular season. In the playoffs, they mostly just got hot and had a very good run through the playoffs. But they added one of the best goal getters in league history, Bradley Wright Phillips. How does that make a team worse? I do not know. <laughs> there have been injuries and international absences, and, and both in the case of a guy like Jossie Zardes. The curse of Caleb Porter, who in his MLS coaching career has never made the playoffs in back-to-back -back years, seems to be striking again. That is an amazing stat. Yes, I did not realize. I agree. Two thousand. Well, yeah, you found it yourself. Two thousand thirteen MLS Coach of the Year doesn't follow that up with a playoff appearance in fourteen in Portland. Comes to Columbus, has been a really good coach there, and yet, man, that is that's wild. And, and part of the job has has been made more difficult for him because of roster inconsistency. In their twenty nine matches this year, Tim, they have used twenty nine different lineup combinations. They've not repeated one yet. Uh, they've been victims of international duties. You mentioned eight players have featured for their countries this year. You add in CCL, you add in Campiones Cup, for what mild distraction that was, and maybe a positive one as they won that. It's been an extremely tough coaching job for Caleb Border. Yeah, I definitely don't envy him in the least. You mentioned some of those absences. You have the international call-ups. You have the injuries. And I think, you know, we haven't even mentioned Aiden Morris, who starred in the MLS Cup final in his rookie year. And he got hurt before the season even began. He tore his ACL in the uh, CONCACAF Champions League. So there's just a lot that's made Porter's job particularly tough this year. But despite that, there's too much talent on this roster to play the way that Columbus has for most of the year. And if they suddenly snap out of it, uh, Nashville SC fans should better hope it's not Wednesday. Well, it's interesting because there's been a bit of a revolving door, especially defensively for this team. But up top, Jossie Zardes has still played 20 of this team's matches, and, and, um, and yet they've not been as effective in the attack. And when you look at defense, 1.34 goals allowed per match this year. Last year, it was almost half a goal less than that, 0.91. So it's that, that steely, awesome defense that has really regressed uh, this season for Columbus. Yeah, and I think you can look at some of their absences, including Eloy Room, um, the outstanding keeper that they have who missed some time um, for the early stages of the Gold Cup and then uh, had a quarantine issue upon his return. These are some of the things that that make it difficult to, to repeat year after year because you have counted on Eloy Room all last season and all of a sudden you don't know that you can do it every game this year and it kind of changes the equation for a team like Columbus that has so many established stars that they have not always had on the pitch this year. But this Nashville team understands Columbus's desperation and their uh, dynamicism up top. And Jack Mayer, full of respect for this Columbus team. Yeah, they got a really good team. And I think we're going to really have to be ready for all the guys they have, whether it's Snagby, 
Zardes, all these guys are just really, really good players. And um, they're going to be a tall task for us, but I think we're going to be ready. After Columbus on Wednesday is Philadelphia on Saturday. And as of recording time, which is uh, Monday evening, the Union present the biggest threat to Nashville's hold on second place. Just a couple of points back of the boys in gold. Uh, Nashville won via a tight 1-0 result during the summer of soccer. Unbeaten in six, though, are Philly and maybe the last team in the East that this club would want to visit at this point in the year, especially on a short week of preparations. When you look at the value of draws that we've already discussed, I think Philadelphia is the sort of situation where you say, okay, we are going to Chester, Pennsylvania, and our goal is to get one point out of this game. Um, you know, you're playing in what soccer folk call a six-pointer on the road. I think we can guess what the plan is going to be, and I just described it. If you earn the draw, you prevent the union from closing the gap. You don't open a bigger gap over the union, but you prevent them from getting any closer. And as there are just a couple games left in the season after this one, it's something that is probably worthwhile, especially, of course, as we previously mentioned, if you do take care of business against Columbus first. And if you're listening to this on Thursday or Friday, as you prepare for the Philly match, uh, you can you can tell us from the future what happened against Columbus. Yes, please do. And please give us your technology and we shall sell it and make a lot of money. Um, <laughs> my plan then is to switch games with John Friedman and just go ahead and take take Wednesday and let him take the scoreless, the likely possible, possible at least scoreless draw. I, I think Nashville is, is going to be counting on you for that scoreless draw magic come Saturday, Wes. I did tell Gary and I apologized. I, uh, not today, but on a previous conversation. I said, sorry, man, when I'm on the mic, you guys just don't seem to score. <laughs> but hey, you don't concede either. Uh, speaking of Gary Smith, Enough of us. Let's get to Gary. Most of the questions you guys have had this year of us, uh, we were able to turn around and ask the gaffer. You're going to really enjoy this conversation with Gary Smith. We'll be back on the other end to talk a bit about our our key reflections from the discussion. But uh, let's go ahead and get you to our conversation with Nashville SC head coach Gary Smith. Well, most of you know the bio of today's guest by heart, so we'll have to dig a little deeper. Gary Smith is in his fourth year leading Nashville SC, and of course his second in MLS. He's a win away from tying his career high for MLS wins in a season, and he's used 26 lineup combinations in 29 matches this year. Gary grew up an Arsenal supporter and worked for the club before making his way to MLS, and in his spare time, he takes out his energy on a pair of punching bags in his garage. Uh, Gary, thank you for taking the time to join us in a busy week like this. Not a lot of time for boxing workouts, I suppose, huh? No, not at all. When the uh, when the games come thick and fast as they are in the in the fifteen day run of of five games in that spell, it's uh, it's more about recovery than anything else. Yeah. So I was going to ask you that. What does a three match week look like for you? Um, you get home at what twelve thirty a.m. early Sunday morning. Um, in between that time and Wednesday, with an eye toward Saturday the whole time as well, how are you effectively balancing that, that scouting of the opponent and preparing your players and maybe getting just a little bit of sleep in the process? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very busy. Um, I, I think all coaches would find the same thing, that if you're doing well those days of or longer days of, of looking into your opponent, of preparing sessions and thinking deeply about are you going to add points to the board? Become a lot easier um, when when things are, are tough, results are tough. It tends to drag. It's like having a really heavy rucksack on your back, and and it makes it all the more difficult. So uh, th- th- this week's a tough one. We've got some really difficult games, but exciting too. Every remaining match but one is against a playoff contender. Recently, you've gone on the road and you've held your ground against teams that would have loved to have gotten three points off of you. How do you balance the need to avoid losing and seeding ground in the playoff race and sometimes playing some of those cagier matches as a result 
with your desire to maintain the momentum that you've built in the attack here in year two? I think you want to win every game, Wes. There's no two ways about that. There's always a slightly different mindset dependent on where you're going, what plays you have available, uh, the form that the, the opponent's in. And, and take Saturday's example against DC. We've been absolutely on fire at home. 13 goals in last four home wins on the trot. It was always going to be difficult with four, what we would class as starting players missing, mm-hmm. coming off of a break. Um, you know, you know all the stats on on how many games we've had away from home in the, in recent schedule. So yes, we want to win it, but there are certain ways and maybe slightly different shifts within the group that are going to help us maintain uh, that that sort of momentum that we have in the league and adding points and and obviously getting beat at this stage of the season is a difficult one. Yeah, that comes back to something that you've talked quite a bit about over the past two years, which is the kind of the idea of balance. So, you know, especially when it comes to finding balance between defending and attack, um, you know, you've mentioned in the past that there have been ways that maybe you felt like you have leaned too hard one way or the other. But in practical terms, how do you change the balance between attack and defense? Is it is it player selections? Is it something tactically like, okay, seven guys do not engage in the attack. You stay back, you know, maybe like a 200 level for, for our listeners. How do you find that balance? Well, there's certain uh, aspects of our planning at the weekend. You know, we I, I get an awful lot of statistics through our analytics department. You know, the DC United group have uh, a real tendency to want to get in behind the back line. Kamara makes very damaging runs from central areas in behind um, what we would class as our outside centre-backs, our trio. Mm-hmm. Um, they secure the ball in good areas and they get players forward at breakneck speed and they play with momentum. You know, there's a, a real tendency and energy to repress and keep you in that, that half of the field. So our plan at the weekend was to try and, you know, offer them as few chances as possible, A, to get in behind us, maybe even to take an extra pass or two in front of us that they're, they're not, you know, stereotypically used to maybe to get players on the ball that are not always the best deliverers into those areas, but certainly first and foremost to negate the amount of times that Kamara could get on the ball in aggressive areas. We had a statistic back after the weekend that Kamara made 15 runs in behind. Um, he, he actually, they only took advantage of three of those and tried to play three balls in behind for Kamara himself. And they only secured it through Kamara on one occasion. Now, for us, that's a success. Now, there's an awful lot of other things that go into, obviously, um, you know, being difficult to break down and to play against. But the other piece of the equation for us was, of course, to try and, you know, win the ball in those midfield areas and, and to be more effective to go and create. Or, just as importantly, to make the right choice to manage the ball. And to, and to frustrate DC. And I think we got the balance just about right. The disappointing aspect for us was we didn't quite take advantage of one or two of the more positive moments. And therefore, we weren't as much of a goal threat as we might have liked to have been. You mentioned a couple of advanced stats here. And, and after games a few times this season, you've mentioned the expected goal stats. If you had told me two years ago, when it was just you and I in the press conferences after the games most of the time, that you would be citing expected goal stats, I wouldn't have believed it. Is that something that you've kind of come around to a little bit? Or is it something that, you know, you just maybe have access to more data so you're able to cite that sort of stuff nowadays? 
I'm, I'm finding more and more so that that information, it, it supports a certain aspect of a visual that I'm probably already seeing. What it tells me is it can be more defined and more pointed. So I may well have looked at a game five years ago. If we're, to, if we're citing the DC game as an example, I would have looked in and said, listen, they really like to get in down those channels and they want to secure the ball in our half of the field. And, you know, they gain momentum and energy. I may not have known that Kamara makes X amount of runs. I may not have known that Nahar and Gressel were the, the, the most effective combination in their build-up. I may not have known those stats. So what I can do is I can be a lot more um, focused in certain areas of the field. It doesn't mean that we change dramatically what we do. But if you looked at the way we defended at the weekend, there were one or two slight differences with Dax playing slightly deeper. And, you know, one or two different things about our wider midfield players in Luke Hackerson and, and Brian Anunga. And that helped us enormously try and win the ball back in specific areas. There's a lot that goes into those decisions. You mentioned analytics and, and data, um, certainly tracking and being able to kind of you know get a feel for work rate and some of those other deeper things. And for our listeners who are not at training every day, we've, we've gotten a fair number of questions about the striker depth chart behind CJ Sapong. When you have a logjam of guys who certainly have the physical ability to contribute in Rios, in Loba, in Cadiz, can you explain your thought process as you evaluate who gets those those second reps, who's coming in to replace CJ in the 60th, 70th minute? of the matches? Well, the, the real difficulty for us, of course, at the moment is that we don't have a, a second team, a reserve team. So a lot of the work that goes on for those guys, their opportunity to impress predominantly is in training and in any work that we can get done there. As far as making decisions or choices, you know, those guys have all got very different qualities. You know, yonder's six foot four, a big physical presence. He is capable of, of getting in behind back lines. But, you know, predominantly he's going to be a very good target for us. He's effective from set set pieces. Akai is, is warming his way into the group. You know, we're finding more and more that his connection and understanding with other players is, is developing and is improving. And I think he's starting to get a little bit more used to the pace of the game. You know, the intensity of training and the workload that he's got to undertake coming out of what will have been an off-season for him. And and then guys like Daniel Rios and Abu, you know, we, I, I obviously know a hell of a lot more about those guys having worked mm -hmm. with them over a period of time. Now, if you look at the weekend, um, Daniel Rios came into the game in, as, as an example, um, as, as a connection, and I'm thinking that as a focal, physical focal point, and also for the ability to try and link and connect with, with Hanny um, and, and to give us a type of work rate that we probably needed um, coming into that final 20 minutes. He fitted the bill for me slightly better than maybe one or two of the others. Now, if you, if you look at the fact that Ake's not seen an awful lot of the field, I think his qualities are starting to replicate and... and and really overlap with, with, with those of Hanny. You know, he's a very talented individual. He's very technically gifted. Um, he's capable of bringing others into the game. And of course, Hanny at the moment is so effective for us. You know, finding those moments and those times that, that Aki can be likewise. Um, 
you know, he's, he's, he's becoming a little bit clearer. And I think as we see the final stages of this season, my hope is that with the, with the uh, logjam of games that we have, that we might see a little bit more of Aki and Yonder and those guys to, to be a little bit fresher in one or two of these games and make a difference. Some of those personnel um, decisions, choices, et cetera, come down to roster building. Now, we asked Mike, our very first interview on this podcast, um, you know, how you guys work together to kind of build the roster. So from your perspective, what is your involvement in kind of uh, accumulating the talent that then you have the choices to make the selections come game day, whether that's the starting 11 or, or on your bench? Well, I, I think we have quite possibly the best process that I've personally been involved in in recruitment. Um, you know, my relationship with Mike is, is a very, very strong one, a very honest and straightforward one since day one in USL. And, and that that continuity and understanding can only help. I, I can't, you know, I've been involved in other situations that have not been anywhere near as, as appreciative as, as we have here. We need a player. We talk about individuals. Um, I'll, I'll give Mike and the coaching, uh, sorry, the, the scouting group an idea of the type of individual that I have in mind. We'll go through numerous players um, and, and talk about their qualities, whether they link in with what I'm after for the team. If, if they're not, we start to define that and refine that search a little bit more. There will obviously be players that are out of reach. And there'll be players that start to come into that umbrella of, of the world that we're working in budget-wise. Mike will go away and start to think about numbers. Chance will go away and start to make contact with those players. Mike and Chance and Ali and Oliver have got a, a wonderful working relationship. And slowly but surely, we start to find our pathway through to certain individuals. We could get some way down the line with an individual and find that, the numbers at the end are not quite what we're after. Or the player doesn't really want to make that move from Europe or South America to um, the US. And we have to constantly have two, three or four players in mind that may well fit the type of role um, and, and, uh, and personality for the team. And when we get to that defining point, of course, we all get together and say, okay, we, we wanted and needed these certain qualities. Do we think we're there at this point? And are we going to pull the trigger on this? And it's a very collective, um, you know, set up and mindset. The individuals that come into the group have to originally fit a certain criteria and quality for the team, though. If they don't, then it makes life very, very difficult to, to actually structure a team and find that continuity that we're after. It's a collective process and it's a complex collective. one, uh, especially when you're, when you're building it from scratch and not just supplementing. Uh, of course, if you guys, as you guys have done over the past year and a half, do you think people around this league appreciate the, the true difficulty that comes with establishing an expansion franchise? You see Cincinnati, Miami, Austin, other clubs, just as examples, you know, really struggle to find their footing. Do they, they appreciate the job that, that your group has done in, in creating something from scratch here? Well, I, th I think to your, to your point there, Wes, there's more examples of teams that have taken a long time to get into gear, have been unsuccessful in the early stages, and then 
have, have found their way. I mean, Minnesota struggled, you know, badly in the first two or three years and have, have you know, really got themselves in a much stronger place. But it's, it's taken time. And there'll be lots and lots of examples of that. It's just not easy to put a team together on and off the field to create an environment, an identity, to get those players on the same page, to get the fans, you know, buying into the type of, of um, you know, style of play and, and to create that excitement and, and that energy around the team. And on top of all of that, results give the group confidence. It gives the fans belief. And all of those elements and qualities together create what you find in a very successful team. I think we're very, very fortunate at this point in time. There's a number of areas that I feel we've got right. Um, the results are a consequence, we hope, of working tirelessly on the same aspects of your game and being on the same page and the players buying into the type of style that we have. And I, I do think at this point that, you know, it'd be very easy easy to take for granted some of the things that have gone well. But I think what we all have to be very, very mindful of is it doesn't take an awful lot for it to go the other way. And it's very easy to, to take, you know, your foot off the gas to, you know, be complacent about the situation you're in. And once that happens, it's incredibly difficult. It's like a, it's like a you know, a, an oil tanker on, on the ocean. Once it's going in the wrong direction, it takes them five or six miles to turn it around. You know, you've got to get them back on track again. So, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to make sure that we're, we're uh, you know, reinforcing the good things that are going on. And, you know, keeping our fingers crossed that we can, we can keep adding points to the ball to maintain that confidence within the group. Yeah, experience is something that you guys have have valued in building this roster and, and you know building the uh, USL roster as well. Um, in terms of uh, uh, seeking MLS Cup, I guess you could say you're one of very few guys on you know involved with this team that has won a cup in the past. Are there lessons, like specific lessons beyond like a championship pedigree, I guess, that you can take from that 2010 season, or is you know 11 years way too much time that the league is completely different as you approach the playoffs here? But I think, you know, the league, has, the league has changed an awful lot in terms of the way that teams have evolved, mm -hmm. um, styles of play, of course. And, you know, winning games has, has become slightly more difficult, I do believe, in, in the modern MLS. It's much, much more competitive. You've only got to look at the Eastern Conference. Um, as far as playoffs and the format of that, again, things have changed. When I won it in 10, there was a, a very different format. We actually were moved across to the Western Conference in that year. But the reality is the mentality, the playoff scenario, the expectation remains the same. And whether you got to win three games or four games to get to the final or more, there were, we played an omen, omen away, um, obviously, um, playoff against uh, Columbus that year. There's only one game and the highest seed of course, gets the advantage of being at home. So if there's if there's any experience to come out of this, last year, I think, gave the guys in the group the very best opportunity to actually see a very clear picture this year. And when you hear people say, look, 
how do we create that mentality of being in the playoffs every year? Well, that's not easy, and we managed that last year. In doing so, we actually weren't able to put ourselves into a position as the playoffs unfolded, the accumulation of games, and then, of course, having to go away to a very talented Columbus team mm-hmm. was ultimately the difference in overtime to moving forward. The lessons learned, maintain a good position in the league. Every point counts. A nil-nil away at DC, you know, with four first-team players missing at the end of an international break might well be the difference this season to being in a home playoff position and not. And when you look at the format this year, if we were able to play that first playoff game at home, we would put ourselves in such a good position to then move on and compete for what comes next. So the guys here came in at the the start of this season. And in talking to them, the biggest thing that came out of the the pre-season chat was that there was still a huge fire burning inside, internally, and, and and a huge amount of frustration that they'd lost out to Columbus and they'd missed a huge opportunity. And that fire has been constantly burning throughout this year. And I think you've seen that in the way the guys have played. They've lost three games to this point. If anyone wants an example of a team that have maintained the, the, the type of discipline and determination from a defeat, just look at this group. And it all leads up to that grand aspiration of MLS Cup. But in addition to that, Mike draws that line between that ultimate aspiration and then objectives along the way. Those, those benchmarks that, that really mark the club's progress in year two. Um, to this point, obviously with a lot of the story yet to be written, how does the team's performance compare to those objectives that you set for year two? Are they tracking? Are they, are they exceeding? Do you have those objectives just written down on a note card somewhere? Or is it more of just a, you know, a, a, a mentality, a, you know, better attacking, things like that, that that you've set out? There was, from day one, a philosophy and a feel and an identity we wanted to try and create around a team. And getting those strong foundations of characters and the right type of mentality in the group was huge. You know, we've seen that along the way, you know, through what is, you know, nearly two seasons now. At the turn of year two, trying to find, as we spoke about earlier, a better balance to the group. You know, what additions might we need? What what did we find in year one that worked really well? And, and what little tweaks do we need to make in year two? And what does that mean as we lead into year three and beyond? You know, how do we continue to compete for playoff postseason berths? How do we make sure that the group that we have is, is maintains and has a core of longevity? And how do we, you know, integrate some of the younger players so that that, that group and that feel continues year after year rather than maybe throwing all our eggs in one basket for one year? And saying, you know, we've got a group of, you know, 30 plus players who know what it's like to get in to the playoffs and to win a cup. But guess what? It's shit or bust. And, you know, the following year, we've got to tear it all up and we've got to move on, maybe, because some of those players have, uh, for one reason or another, unable to continue financially or otherwise. So 
there are an awful lot of things that are discussed. There's an awful lot of discussion about the group. But ultimately, could we be more of a threat going forward than we were last year? Were we going to be able to manage games better and maintain the ball and work teams over better? Could we continue not only our home form, but make sure that our home advantage was maintained? So, you know, whereabouts were we in winning games and, and, and just tipping that the right way? And ultimately, your away form will always have an impact, but it's not all about being a home team. It's about being competitive and, and turning the scales when you go away from home and asking some questions. And I've got to say, the development in this group, the, the, the understanding and relationships that have built, you know, from year one to year two have, have been exceptional. And, you know, what we can look at are that some of the underlying statistics are exceptionally good. And the development in the team has certainly moved in the direction I would like it to have done. You don't always get the points that you deserve with that development though. And I think we've been fortunate in the fact that that development has led to better, a better points haul. And we continue to search for what we hope is going to be a really strong playoff position at the end of the year. Well, Nashville SC manager, Gary Smith, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and best of luck during a busy week. Great to speak to you both. Yep. Thanks, Gary. Tim, Gary is always extremely earnest to talk about his team, and we both developed strong relationships with him in our four years uh, of, of covering him. Uh, but truly a, a deep conversation and, and hopefully added a lot of value to, to folks' understanding of, of where this club is headed. Yeah, we talk to him all the time, but it's more in a, a press conference situation or a post-game situation where we're trying to get information about the upcoming or past game. It is so refreshing to be able to just kind of uh, shoot the stuff with him a little bit. Shoot the breeze, I think is what they say, uh, if they don't have the same sort of tongue that I do. <laughs> shoot the breeze with Gary a little bit about about broader topics and, and things that people have been really interested in. Um, we got a pretty uh, honest answer about Ake Lobo, which is something that people have really, really wanted to know about. We got pretty honest answers about his growth and development as a coach, even within the past couple of years. And these are the sort of things that I don't think you'll be able to get anywhere else. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that he was so open with us and, and we had a great conversation with him. Yeah. A couple of things that really jumped out to me, um, even as we're having so many of those chats with him on a regular basis on and off the record, um, his discussion of the galvanizing power of last year's Columbus loss. I think he was, he was pretty strong on the record last year and, and in the early part of the season that that loss had stuck with the team and that they were not just happy to make a long run, an historic run for an expansion club, but disappointed, in fact, that they, they thought they could have gone further. But it's interesting that that is still stuck and still lingered, despite all that's happened this year, that that is still something that is, at least according to him, at the forefront of, of his players' minds and key to their mentality. And to me, it lends even more importance than to a match against Columbus at home. Columbus, the only team that Nashville has ever played three times and never beaten. Uh, so a bit of a white whale, a, a, a yellow whale, if you will, uh, <laughs> coming down to Nissan Stadium. Number two, I think, is is Gary's emergence as a subscriber to analytics. I thought your question was really good there, and his answer very candid about the fact that you know this is something that he has access to and that he's dug into, and, and it's made a difference in his growth as a coach. Yeah, and it's something that uh, analytics people are often kind of roasted on the internet by by kind of, watch the film mate sort of people games not played on a spreadsheet mate but Gary 
said what a lot of the analytics people would would certainly lo love to echo that both sides of the game whether it's visual or numbers wise kind of tell the story of each other and bringing them together is is the only way that you can get the full picture i think and that's something that he put into much more eloquent words than i just did <laughs> i think you did quite well sir in uh, <laughs> analytics more so than just xg and xxa and maybe that that then second mm -hmm. level of, of deeper you know knowledge but i mean every player is wearing a gps tracker yeah. that will track Every aspect of their movement, location, runs in behind, um, you know, I, I believe even calisthenic, you know, data. Mm -hmm. And he pours over that stuff. And, and that has been very key to our conversations with him about lineup decisions. And so, you know, I think there, there has been a lot of frustration with certain squad rotation decisions at times this year. Um, none of us is above questioning. And Gary is, is on that list. He's, he's not above questioning and doubt and skepticism, of course, except for Tim. I am. You are above. <laughs> you are unimpeachable, good sir. Except for the Michigan that you're wearing. Many questions about that judgment there. Um, so, none of, you know, no, we're not telling you don't question the manager. Of course not. We've questioned the manager on the show. Um, but there are often, you know, other, you know, analytical decisions, the physical data that he has access to that, that are forming the basis of some of those decisions that we will never be privy to. And, and I think, you know, it is instructive to hear him say that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can we can disagree with him on kind of the outcomes or the or the effects of what he chooses to do based on the information. But knowing why he made the decision and, and maybe why we disagree with it at times is, is something that can kind of gives you a better picture of, of the whole coach and not just what you see and maybe a, a few too many scoreless draws from the fans. Perspective. Again, thanks to uh, to Gary for his his candor, for his time. And uh, certainly we want to continue to be set apart in this market by providing the best possible guests and no one better at this stage in the season to talk to than the gaffer himself. We'll move into the mailbag now where you can ask us some of your questions and, and we have fresh, uh, fresh perspective because we just talked to Gary about some of these things, um, including question number one from Brian Wilson. He says, I love the defensive record recently, but is anyone worrying about our offensive momentum going into the playoffs? We'd love to see the Trinity, CJ, Hani, Vandal, get back into some goals for confidence, if nothing else. Yeah, I have to say I'm not too concerned about it, mostly because those meager outputs have all come on the road, and Nashville wouldn't have to deal with that. Well, knock on wood, until a winner-take-all matchup with New England. And, and when the stakes are, there are no draws. They will probably play a very different game against New England than they have in many road games this year. And this remains the fifth-highest-scoring team in the league, despite the meager output lately. And keep in mind, the Chicago game didn't have Mukhtar or Sapong. The D.C. game didn't have either starting win wing back, particularly Dan Lovett, who's a top-30 expected assist guy in the league, or Leal. So they've been doing it without the guys that we're saying that we want to see into a group. Now, that's just maybe a problem of its own that they haven't always been available, but it's definitely one that I think is less significant than if they had been playing together and, and hadn't been scoring. Yeah, I think the, the canary in the coal mine here is going to be the Cincinnati match coming up uh, Wednesday, October 27th. Um, everybody and their mother has scored on Cincinnati this year, including Nashville at home a couple of times. If, if Nashville's attack struggles on the road in Cincinnati – um, you know, and maybe it's going to be a heavily rotated, you know, group to, to rest up against a team that's not in playoff contention. But if still, if they struggle against Cincinnati, I think it's fair to start asking questions about that attacking momentum. Um, but I think if they can score a couple in a foreign net, then they're off and running into the playoffs. I mean, look at what they did against Inter Miami. And I think, you know, five goals is a lot to ask, but, but a similar uh, mentality, I think, is going to be at, at play in Cincinnati. And I think it, it's going to be key to give this team some confidence on the road. 
Yeah, and it's worth noting that um, in appreciation for all their fans who care about nothing more than having very high attendance numbers, Cincinnati is one of the worst home teams in the league. They, they score fewer than anybody in the league for the most part. This is a this is a bad home team, and for that reason alone, um, beyond the fact that this is also just a historically bad three-wooden-spoon-bound in a row team, it's something that you definitely want to take care of business there. Cincinnati has won once on its new home pitch. So, so Jay Oz, continuing on the attacking theme, asks about another thing that we discussed with Gary. Do we have a full-blown Ake Loba issue? Why is Gary Smith not finding a way to put his $7.8 million designated player forward out there, maybe paired with CJ? And I think we heard the answer in that discussion of, of trust over ability. Um, and I'm not denigrating the ability of a, of a Daniel Rios, but the fact of the matter is Loba does have a little more uh, class. He has $7.8 million of, of, of ability coming in. Um, I do remain surprised that, that Cadiz comes in before Ake Loba, but there again, I think we're informed a bit by what he told us in the interview, which is that you know Loba's skills make him a bit redundant with Hani Mukhtar in certain situations of playing yeah. up the field, of setting things up, whereas Cadiz can be more of that, of that target. Um, so I think that's a little more of an X factor that leads to Cadiz coming in before Loba. And that's honestly something I was, I was wondering and, and was glad to hear him illuminate. Again, we can di- agree or disagree with, with the reasoning behind it, but I think I understand now why um, Ake is not coming in um, before Yonder, who's not scored since the second match of the season. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the frustration among fans. Shiny new toy, don't get to play with it, I guess. Yeah. But I didn't. I did not pay seven point eight million dollars for Ake Loba, and I don't think any fan paid seven point eight million dollars for Ake Loba. The only person who can be upset that the seven point eight million dollar toy is not being played with is probably John Ingram. So I, th- I think playing him just to satisfy a bit of a, a sunk cost fallacy, which you must note has the word fallacy built right in there, <laughs> is, is something that you don't really want to do. You want to play a guy because he gives you the best chance to win um that doesn't mean he's not worth 7.8 million dollars either right now or as an investment but it's just not the most important thing i think the most important thing for nashville fans is to see the lineup that gives you the best chance to win regardless of whether ake loba is in it or not yeah i understand really two levels of concern here from fans number one you know the price tag paired with seeing other players come in and and make impact at other clubs Mm -hmm. pretty early on in their tenures um, and number two, Yonder Cadiz happened last year. You know, not not the same player, not the same price tag, but a splashy DP comes in and everybody says, you know, give him an off season to really integrate himself and get going. Good start to the season for Yonder and then futility after. And, and so maybe there's some reflexive concern uh, that, that the same thing could happen to Ake Loba. But I remain fairly convinced those are two very different situations in that, you know, Ake Loba, you know, he, he's in preseason shape. He comes in. And he's behind a CJ Sapong who's producing like a madman or was there for, for the heart of the season. Daniel Rios has the trust of Gary Smith. It's just, it, I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a unique situation, even if it feels similar to Yonder last year. Yeah, and I think the biggest issue with all of this, um, aside from what Gary told us about how Loba is more of a Mukhtar-like player than necessarily a Sapong-like player is, you don't want to take CJ Sapong off the field if he's if he's healthy and scoring, and he's certainly scoring. So, other than rest situations for for CJ or rest situations for Hani Randall, the guys who you want to see out there as much as possible, there just aren't a ton of minutes to go around. And maybe if if Loba had joined at the very beginning of the year, you could get him integrated in you know a few minutes here, a few minutes there. In the final 10, 15 games of the season, you probably don't want to be upsetting that chemistry too much. I think the move I make, we just talked about the importance of scoring at Cincinnati, but we've also talked about how almost every team has done that. I think I start Loba for CJ up top against Cincinnati on, on next Wednesday. 
Like I give him that chance to, to get the starting minutes, even if it's just for 45 minutes. If he can get off the schneid, even via a PK, see the ball in the back of the net, you know, maybe there's, there's oh, Alex Mwil. I know getting roasted by Wes, uh, catching a stray right here. <laughs> Alex Mwil's brace against DC at home as he, <laughs> he decides to take the PK instead of, uh, of Ake Love. I mean, Hey, Mwil's got, got particular affinity for scoring against DC. I can't get too mad at the guy, but uh, nonetheless, I, I think maybe that's a chance to work in Loba in a lower stakes match, mm-hmm. but that kind of rides on getting a win against Columbus for it to be a lower stakes yeah. match. So well, we'll see what happens there. Um, NSC N8. Nate? We don't. Nate? Eight. NSC Nate? Nate, probably yes. so. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe not named after the uh, the heel turn character in Ted Lasso. We'll see. Um, what heights could NSC reach if we had a DP level striker? Could Sapong use a few games off so we can reach his top form again? I, I, mean, I think CJ's played like a DP level striker, so to attack the premise of the question just a little bit there. Um, but, but there's the rub. I think Nashville doesn't have a striker who can match CJ's production, hold up play, chemistry with Hani, and distribution uh, right now. If there's a weak point for this team, um, you know, I think you have good, capable options there, but not a go to backup striker. Yeah, I, I think the backup striker is is maybe not a DP compensation guy, but a guy who could play like a DP if he were ever healthy for more than a season at a time, and that's Daniel Rios. But I think you nailed it. CJ Sapong, regardless of how much money he is making um, per the MLS Players Association, is effectively a DP-level striker. I don't think Nashville is playing the season without a guy who fits that description. A DP-level striker on a free transfer. Well, yeah, and... and, and- some of that stuff makes sense. He is, he does not necessarily look like a DP level striker. The style is not there in this, in the sense of a guy um, who's, who's going out and bagging a bunch of goals and making $11 million a year. But this is a dude who gets the job done. It's, it's, you know, a, a rich man's Jesse's art in a lot of ways. Hearing from Logan Elliott, who is a, uh, a UT and Arsenal um, combo fan, just like I am. So Tough for you guys. What a weekend. Oh my gosh. I'm not going to, I won't throw any projectiles in this conversation. I promise. Uh, But, but Logan is interested to know the offensive stats when Nashville is in a back five versus a back four. He says, it seems to me that the back five actually improves our attack. Lovitz is a great distributor and the width from the wing backs allows our attackers to play more direct and compact football. It's also really set up that this is me, not him. Now it's set up that trio up top, the, the, the the Trinity um, as, as labeled by Brian Wilson. Uh, and enabled them to really have that chemistry. Um, so I'll give the stats for you, but I'll give a couple of qualifiers and, and then take it over to Tim for maybe the tactics behind it. Uh, the back five has has been the formation in the past 16 matches, 2.1 goals per match compared to the back four for the first 10 matches of just 1.3 goals per match. So there you go. Um, you know, eight tenths of a goal better on average, 33 total goals, 22 of them at home in that back five. 13 total goals, 11 of them at home in the back four. Again, you know, or most of those those home games early in the season were were home games. So there are other variables to factor in besides the home away split. Uh, namely, the team has developed since those first 10 matches. CJ has replaced Yonder up top. Honey Mukhtar has emerged. Um, maybe part of that emergence has been because of the formational change. But um, to, to draw that distinction, uh, hopefully those stats are helpful. Now, Tim, give me the uh, the why behind those numbers. 
Yeah, I, I do think it's worth noting that some of the back five versus back four stuff this year, whether that's a complete change uh, midseason is is some, perhaps a different question. But there's been matchup oriented stuff that that makes it so that the outputs aren't strictly a measure of effectiveness. This team went with three center backs to shut down a dual striker formation out of the Philadelphia Union earlier in the year. Um, that was that was kind of a one off because they knew that Philly had a style that needed that extra center back on the pitch to have you know, a big striker tandem that's going to be tough to deal with with just two center backs. So it's not necessarily an identity difference between the two at all times. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Either way, I, th- I think this is, as you kind of mentioned at the end there, much more of a Jimmy's and Joe's difference than an X's and O's one. The individuals are performing better and with better chemistry as the year has gone along. And some of that is because they are just playing more games together. It is the natural progression of time, which is a flat circle. Um, but, but also... As you mentioned, being able to have maybe that fluid front three with various uh, different wrinkles to it has allowed Hani Mukhtar to get into more dangerous positions. It has allowed Randall Leal to kind of get a little bit more comfortable playing centrally and on that left side. It's given them the opportunity to do some different things. And that's is that a back three versus back four difference or is that a, a you know a situation where these guys are comfortable with each other and, and just finding the best way to get the best players on the pitch? And by the way, if you ever want to know what Gary Smith calls his formation, 3-5-2, he told us on a recent broadcast call that we can publicly call it a 3-4-3 with a twist, which also sounds like the name of a good cocktail if you were to name it after. Yeah. I think I had one of those uh, down at the Catbird seats. Shaken, not stirred, of course. Sean White with our last question. Uh, which member of the club has the best alternate job waiting for them if this whole soccer thing doesn't work out? The three he mentions, actually, the soccer thing's worked out pretty well, but everybody's got to retire at some <laughs> Yeah, point. it's going okay for them, right? Yeah, Alistair Johnston as a weatherman, Dax McCarty as a commentator, Dan Lovitz as a talk show host. All three of those uh, guys, I think those are great suggestions. What else you got? Yeah, we had the same one to start with, so I think we both abandoned it. But um, my my backup answer is is two players in a battle for one job, and that's Walker Zimmerman versus Taylor Washington for a professional video gamer. Oh, yeah. The two guys who absolutely love to get on the Twitch machine and and uh, I don't know do shooting or whatever. I don't know. I don't. And I'm not a big gamer. We are very shock. young and with it, as you can tell yeah. by that. Yeah. Get on the Twitch machine and do shooting. Yeah. Exactly. I could do I could do no better. Better you than me. There's a reason you went first there. <laughs> um, so the one we both had, CJ Sapong is a life coach and or motivational speaker. If you need any yeah, yeah. any explanation, just go back and listen to an interview with CJ that we did pretty early in the history of, of this podcast. Uh, just a tremendous mentor for the young guys. He's a meditator. He's a thinker. He's a, an investment advisor at times. We uh, we hear he's, he he um, is all about things uh, other than soccer, and also obviously pretty dang good at at the game itself. And, uh, has a lot a lot to offer off the pitch whenever he's he decides to hang up the boots. And then uh, my two, um, Joe Willis as an '80s movie star, only if he keeps the mustache, <laughs> of course. Um, and Jack Mayer as a milkman, of course. That would make him a '50s movie star, then, right? Is that when Milkmen stopped happening? Is that? I think I think that's about right. Yeah, we're talking again, very old here, several generations behind the the young the young kids these days. Uh, all right, well, let's go outside in. And I uh, thought for for just a couple of minutes we'd talk about the Eastern Conference playoff picture. We go deep on Nashville every week. This is a week to watch the other matches too, and to Absolutely. really they all understand. Watch it all. Watch it all. Watch it all. Watch the games. That's what they say, right? Uh, so, so Nashville holds a two-point lead on Philly right now and three on Orlando, both of whom it still has to visit. 
And before it makes those trips, a lot's going to happen that's going to render this part of the show pretty dang irrelevant. So circle back, keep listening, but then circle back Thursday uh, after Wednesday night's games and look at where things stand again and kind of recalibrate some of your numbers right now. But but I thought we could look at, at a couple of defining matches or a few defining matches this week on both of the match uh, the match days, Wednesday and Saturday, and then there's one there's one Sunday as well. Um, so first off, before we get into Wednesday's games, looking ahead towards Saturday, I think Nashville-Philadelphia is the game of the weekend in the East. Two versus three. Depending on how things shake out, it could be Nashville third place versus second place Philadelphia at that point. Um, really a lot hanging in the balance of that Nashville-Philadelphia game. Yeah, and obviously we talked at length about it previously because this is a Nashville show, but Philly is a team that, like a couple others in the Eastern Conference, probably doesn't feel like it's having as good a season as it should. And when that's how you feel and you're in third place in the table, this is a team that has a lot of potential when you visit them to really make you hurt. And Nashville wants to avoid that, and not least of which because they want to remain in second place in the Eastern Conference. Ernst Tanner would tell you to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) Jim Curtin, of course, the manager of Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. You have to explain the and, job. And then, Ernst, and then Ernst is the general manager, so he's like behind Jim Curtin. Yep, yep. Also, like, Jim Curtin is so big, so it's easy to hide behind him. He's a tall man. That's true. This joke yeah. works on a literal level as well. Yeah, yeah. He's tall, and he he wears like the Jordans all the time, so he's getting maybe give like an extra inch or two. Oof. That's good stuff. By the way, explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You learn all about it, but the frog dies. <laughs> totally killed the joke. But uh, anyway, we, we said we would talk about elsewhere in the East, and then I went straight to Nashville, Philadelphia. So let's actually go outside of, of Music City. On Wednesday, two other big contests to follow. Atlanta versus NYC. Two points separate them. Tim, who had the Pigeons sitting in eighth place tied with Red Bulls? Uh, this time a month ago, I think we all saw NYC as a prime candidate to host a playoff game, maybe to be Nashville's biggest threat in the table. And yet now they're sitting in eighth after only earning one point in three matches against their rivals in the Hudson River Derby. Yeah, and that's over like three weeks to have that many games back to back to back against your rival and do so poorly. When you started that sequence way, way, way ahead of them in the table and now you're tied with them. So that's pretty tough. But this is a team that, um, you know, not to scoop myself here since everybody will have had the opportunity to read it by the time this podcast comes out. The numbers still think they're they're the number one team in the league. Um, So this is a, a club that is playing below its level. But again, similar to what I just said about Philadelphia, but maybe to an even more extreme degree, if they snap out of it, they can snap out of it. But uh, at this point, they have to if they even want to make the playoff field. Montreal potentially played a bit above its level and earned a last-second draw against Philadelphia in its last match. It visits Orlando on Wednesday. Big step toward Orlando, sealing a top-four spot. Montreal one point above the line, and if they can somehow get three points away from home against the Lions, and all of a sudden they're in the mix to host a playoff game. Yeah, and I think when you look at especially the home road splits, as we've discussed ad nauseum in this episode of the podcast, you have to think that if Orlando doesn't get the result, they're feeling really iffy about if they get to host a playoff game, if they have what it takes to to come back over their final few games to, to get back into those positions if, if they drop out of there in the midweek round of games. But Montreal is a team that, uh, man, Georgi Mihailovic, we've talked about him a couple times this year because Nashville has played against Montreal a couple times this year. He's having a heck of a year. I'm excited for him. For former U.S. youth international and occasional international. Um, I've been really excited to see him play this year, and he's he's performed better than he ever did for Chicago Fire, which is, I think, pretty much par for the course for the Fire. I was going to say, <laughs> stop me if you've heard this before. Unwanted yeah. in Chicago, thriving elsewhere. C.J. Sapong, Dax McCarty, 
the list could could probably go go on from there. Uh, so Orlando, Atlanta, NYC, Orlando, Montreal, two huge matches to watch Wednesday. How about Saturday? A couple of great ones this weekend. NYC hosts DC United. So we've just talked about the Pigeons, but they're back home, taking on a United team that that is also in the hunt, desperate. Really would have loved to have take th- taken all three from Nashville. That one's going to be really interesting. And then Columbus uh, versus Red Bulls, a battle that that could be, probably likely will be taking place um, just below the playoff line. And one team probably eliminated from contention mm-hmm. if if the other wins. Again, all this depending on what happens Wednesday and what happens yeah. between Columbus and Nashville. Unless unless both of them get three points on Wednesday, I think it's an elimination game for the playoffs. And again, this, the spreadsheet is is cranking away over here, but I think that might be literal. It might be, you know, if one team loses twice, this week they're eliminated from the playoffs. That's going to have huge implications, not necessarily at the top of the table, but but at a point in the table that is uh, crucially important for these guys. And in the match most likely to cause the stadium to implode before one team is allowed to get three points, Miami plays Cincinnati. <sighs> Burn it all down. Burn yeah, it all down. The, the sigh is my full comment on, on both of those teams. Same here. <laughs> Final whistle. Yeah. Content recommendations. Mine is simple, Tim watch all the games i understand wednesday's tough fans are going to be likely at nissan stadium so you know give you a pass for that um but but saturday take the opportunity to to check out some games watch sunday there's some good western conference stuff going on as well that's a little less of a of a chaotic situation over there but still some some great action right along the playoff line so you know don't listen to us talk about these games and then just walk away and, and look at the table later do what you can to at least watch the the highlights um we don't get paid by MLSsoccer.com, but go to the MLS app and check out. The, they have a good 15-minute game recap where you can go a little deeper than just standard highlights. Watch these games. We promise you, you will not be disappointed because this league is freaking crazy. Yeah, my, my recommendation is a music recommendation. It's for a band called Custard. They're an Australian indie rock band formed in 1989 in Brisbane, Queensland. And they are most known for this podcast as the home of David McCormick, who is the father bandit on Bluey. We are the number one Bluey podcast <laughs> of West Nashville. Um, so check them out. I fell down a Wikipedia rabbit hole today. Have you ever done this before, Wes? Oh, go on to en.wikipedia.org en. and you, just, you go nuts. Yep. So the, I, that is how I discovered this fact today. You can thank my wife and my lovely daughter for this information and check them out. I've been listening to them today. They're extremely indie rock from 1989, but they they still exist. So they have more modern stuff too. Um, I have not checked out the modern stuff. David McCormick's only only canonical work to me is as the voice of Bandit from children's television show Bluey. As soon as you said Australia, I thought this is going to have a connection back to Bluey. <laughs> um, always, always. Little man, little man at home to me. He's 14 months old. He's almost old enough to start to at least appreciate the shapes and some of the voices on the show. I think we're about to get into Bluey as well. I watched an episode to kind of check it out after your recommendation. It's cute. It's, 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 um, it makes you feel good. Are you, are you really going to sing the music? That's where we're going with this? All right, let's go ahead and, uh, yeah. and play some Moon Taxi <laughs> and get out of here and drown them out. Uh, thanks to Moon Taxi for, for playing the music. Thanks to ESPN 94.9 for the highlights. Guys, if you really like the show, please rate, review, subscribe. Uh, you, you might already subscribe. You might have already given us a rating and a review. If you haven't, it really means a lot to us. It's good for, for the algorithms and all the fancy stuff way smarter than I am. Um, and uh, and listen to the other shows on 440 Sports as well. Tell a friend, give us each a follow on Twitter. I have I have one more content recommendation. Okay. My apologies. We are we are disrupting the order of the show. 
Hey, ch- everybody, check out the, the latest issue of the Nashville Scene magazine. Uh, make your way to uh, somewhere in the mid-80s page number-wise. Look up the top sports writers in Nashville this year and look at number three. Um, many thanks to the Nashville Scene and many thanks to all of you who, uh, who voted for me. Um, Adam Vingen, I'm coming for you, man. Uh, 440 Sports Network, <laughs> friendly fire coming this way. You get the bronze medal of Nashville sports writers. Congratulations on that, by the way. And you're at least the second best host on this podcast as well. (laughs) Most days, most days you get our gold medal there too. Congratulations. That seriously is awesome. It's fantastic to see you put in so much work um, going deep to cover this team deeper than anybody else. And and it's got to feel good to, to get a little bit of love for that. Yeah, rules. And there was not a single sports podcast, by the way, that made the top podcast. So we'll forgive you guys for that, and we'll ask you to vote again next year. But that's all right. Tim got Tim got his his piece, and that's that's awesome. Guys, we look forward to talking to you next week. A lot's going to change between now and then. Uh, special thanks also to Gary Smith for coming on and to the Nashville SC Media Relations staff for making that happen. Uh, we can't wait to see what happens and come back and talk to you again Tuesday. Until then, we'll talk to you soon.